Hello and welcome to Delete Delete Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. Bronwyn Foster Butler has forged a successful career in fashion and more recently sustainable fashion with marketing roles at Burberry, Lululemon and Pangaea and she's currently the Chief Marketing Officer at Cornish sustainable surfwear brand Finisterre, a brand often referred to as the Patagonia of the UK. I chatted to Bronwyn about the do's and don'ts of sustainability comms, about building and maintaining a sustainable brand, the secrets of a good sustainability narrative, and why manufacturing companies really shouldn't be using the word sustainable and sustainability at all. Enjoy the podcast. So Bronwyn, uh, welcome to Delete Delete Engage. Lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. Bronwyn, you've forged a successful career in fashion and more recently sustainable fashion with marketing roles at Burberry, Lululemon, Pangaea, Voiloc, and you're currently CMO at Finisterre. That's right, isn't it? I've got that right, that order right. Yeah, and beautifully pronounced. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, when we chatted before, you you corrected me, I think, on the G in Pangaea and, and uh, was it Lululemon I had I mispronounced. But anyway, I'm there Nailed now. it. I'm there now. Would you mind just kind of quickly talking me through that kind of that career progression, if you like, till, up to where you are today? Certainly. So I actually started prior to Burberry. I was in Adland. So I was at JWT and now I believe it's Wonderman Thompson. Uh, I got into Adland through their grad program, which was a great just opportunity to learn and everyone know that your job is to learn. And I see so many junior people enter the workforce now and I see it's almost like they're not given the generosity of recognizing that in the first few years, their only job is to learn and to hone a craft and to figure out what they're good at. And so often I see people in their first few years just feeling like they have to be an expert already. And and what I feel so grateful for is that coming through the grad program that was accepted and anticipated and scheduled, like yeah. we, kn- we knew what the, the cadence of learning was going to be. Um, so from Adland, I had a lovely few years there learning, working 100 hour weeks and all the great skills that yeah. an ad agency will give you. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to join the team at Burberry. It was sort of during, I mean, it's still having a heyday, but it was certainly during its digital resurgence under CEO Angela Arendt and creative director Christopher Bailey. It was at a time when Facebook was still, I mean, it still is so huge, but it was in the early days of Facebook. Before Meta. Yeah, exactly. Um, And when Burberry was the first luxury brand to have a Facebook page, and that was so huge and consequential. And I remember every employee was given an iPad and it was the first generation iPad. And that was part of this. We were digital or Angela always spoke about us being a digital first brand. And we opened a huge store on Regent Street, but we didn't call it a store. We called it the living embodiment of the website. And it was this really exciting time to join this huge house, this house with heritage and prestige. But then at a time when we were trying to bring youthful energy to it and there it we knew we were onto something big. There was this sense of this is just the start of this wave that social is going to be big and digital is so much more than a display ad. And and there was this energy and excitement that was a thrill to be a part of. After a few years at Burberry, I... I'm Canadian, yes. so I've always known Lululemon. Yes. Canadians are very proud of Canadian brands. Yes. Um, rest in peace, Blackberry. It was great. <laughs> um, and so... 
I had a friend who worked there and I was always messaging her going, when are you coming to Europe? Like London is ready. You know, up, up until that point, if I saw another person in the street wearing a piece of Lululemon, I'd go up and I know yeah. they'd be Canadian. I'd yeah. be like, oh, hi, how are yeah. you? And we'd, in that Canadian way, start probably find out that we know each other in yeah. some <laughs> weird capacity. And eventually, after a few years, she was like, OK, yeah, I want to introduce you to somebody because we're, we're looking at it now. So there I was, sort of this lowly little marketing manager, really early on in my career, respectively, or comparatively. And then next thing you know, I was on the phone to the VP of International at Lulu. And I was really just a sounding board. They they knew they wanted to come to Europe, but they weren't entirely sure how. They had a pretty good formula for market entry, but they didn't understand the, the nuances and whether or not, to be honest, Brits were ready to sweat enough. Yeah. We used to talk about yeah. that a lot of like yeah. are, are are the Brits going to work out as hard as North <laughs> Americans do and are you suggesting the Brits were slightly on the tubby side no, in comparison to the all, Canadians? No, not at all, not at all, but I think working out here has changed a lot in the yeah. last decade yeah. and I think Lululemon was part of that transformation. I think that would have happened anyway, but mm. I do think we used to have a success metric of how many yoga studios can open up around a store. Mm -hmm. Like we wanted to grow yoga and grow movement. And that was inevitably happening, but I think we helped pour a little bit of gas on the fire. So that was at the end of those conversations with the very important VP of International. After about eight months, they were a bit like, oh yeah, I guess you should come and work for us. So I got to join the team. We were in a tiny office off the King's Road above a showroom. You know, I think it was open three days a week for the public to come and it was Ikea rails, like the product wasn't displayed beautifully. It was not at all a retail experience, but it was the start. And, the, you know, people who had been to Canada or the States, they'd heard about us and they were starting to come and uncover and discover. And it was that sense of discovery and word of mouth of you, you, you had to be taken there by somebody. And that is a really it leads to that human behavior of wanting to like sh show something to your friend and and look good in at the same time but this this sense of discovery was really part of the brand i was lucky enough to be there for 6 years we grew uh, from about 5 to 100 million from about four employees in the head office to over 65 yeah. uh, i got to grow up my own team up to about 16 when i left <clears throat> grew all across europe we did localization with French and German. I was traveling all the time and getting to do yoga and work out. Wow, what a job. And didn't you say that that was the first time that you kind of got started to get your head around employee engagement and what that involved? Yeah, it was a huge part of the culture there. So Chip, the founder, used to always say that we were a leadership development company that happens to make stretch pants. <laughs> and it was transformational, actually, really this idea of like, if, if personal development and leadership is at the absolute core of a company, what that does to set up the company for rapid success. I see that now in my work at Finisterre of really bringing in this culture of development and helping people see that that is what unlocks growth. Mm. If humans aren't developing and learning, and if we're not sort of accepting of one another in that journey and, and holding each other big and supporting each other, then that's when I see companies become toxic and stagnant and struggle to find growth and it become a bit of a money pit because they're throwing money at what growth is, yeah. totally ignoring that it starts inside. Yes. And if your employees aren't engaged and if they're not being developed and if they're not learning, then you're at this huge capital risk that sat there and sure, they might be delivering what they're 
job description is, but mm. you're missing out on all that white space that we talked a lot about 80-20, like 80% of the job. Yes, it is It is. It is the job description, et cetera, but that 20% can be the thing that really tips us over. And yeah. I think that was, I think that came through personal development. Yeah, yeah. And so after Lululemon, you were into uh, Voiloc, is that right? Or have I missed one? Pangaea. Pangaea. And how was that? That was interesting. I um, I was on my mat leave with my daughter. It was March 2020. Yes. The world was shutting down. Yeah. I had an inclination. I was done at Lulu. I'd done six years. It was a regional office. There wasn't really anywhere else to go. And a friend of mine who I'd worked with at Burberry, she was on the founding team at Pangaea and she called me and she was like, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at this, we've started this company called Pangaea. Something's just happening. And I think we're going to be bigger than we think we are. Mm. And we just need somebody to come on and, and, and help us figure out what the marketing and creative team does. That's quite a nice brief, actually, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And so I remember sort of speaking to her and for, formally running through my CV post-Burberry with her. And she's like, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's good. Like, but but can you join now? And I had a six-week-old baby. Yeah. The nurseries had just shut down. So my son wow. was at home. And I was like, can you give me six more weeks mm. and then I'm yours? Mm. And so there it was. We got to sort of mid-May and I was joining calls. I mean, the alternative was that I was going to be stuck at home with a three-year-old and a now almost four-month-old. We were only allowed outside once a day. Like yes. there, it was it was so, so draconian at yeah. the time. Yeah. And I've always known I'm a better mum when I have work and when yeah. I have independence. Yes. And I knew going into my second mat leave that keeping up, I, I wasn't going to take 12 months that, you know, if, if I was going to be changing career, I'd probably be looking from around six. So yeah. especially with the, all the uncertainty around COVID, it, it felt like the right move. And it was just like joining a rocket ship. We, mm. when I had that initial conversation, the goal had been, I think they were at about on course for 5 million, going for 10. And we finished eight months later at 75 million. Wow. On like- Your a, friend was right. She was right. I, I mean, it was even from like an Instagram metric. When I joined, we had 75,000 followers. And by that December, we had 800,000 followers, which wow. anyone who works in social knows that you don't get organic growth like that anymore. Yeah. Those, those days are long gone. And it was also a huge unlearning from Lulu because Lulu uh, Lemon was all about retail, all about growing a market through our stores, learning community, building relationships with yoga teachers. And then here we were with an online only digital celebrity influencer. You know, Bieber was wearing it. The Kardashians were wearing it. We, like, we, every, once a week, there was another massive celebrity wearing it because it was the perfect lockdown outfit. It was yeah. a colorful tracksuit. Yeah. It had sustainability credentials, which importantly are if you're taking a selfie within your photo frame really easily. Yes. It was for a set, it was three, like, so for a top and bottom, it was 300 pounds. So it was luxurious enough that, you know, it, 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 there was this aspiration behind it, but it also wasn't 3,000 pounds. It wasn't sort of unaccessible luxury. And what we saw was people were at home and if they were lucky enough to still be employed, we had cash to burn. Like yeah. you, you weren't booking your holiday, you weren't going out for dinner, mm. but wearing a really nice tracksuit made out of recycled cotton and yeah. dyed with you know, botanical dyes that come from fruit and veg. That was a pretty compelling story to tell all your friends on social or during your Zoom calls with family. Yeah. So it was it was a rocket ship and a really exciting one. And then Voiloc. Oh, Voiloc. <laughs> it was, 
I, after 18 months at Pangaea, I was, I was just toast. I was done. It was so fast and with a baby and with all the light. And, That's a lot, isn't it? It, it was a lot. Juggle. And this opportunity came up with this peculiar Russian boot. Yes. Uh, Voilock. Just, just for people who've maybe not heard or seen the Voilock boot, I'm it's sure kind of a furry have. boot with a plastic clip-on base, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's a wool felt boot yes. um, with a rubber overshoe. Yeah, that's and- far more ele- elegant to put than I <laughs> It's based on a traditional Russian boot called a Valenki. It's, you know, it's zero waste. It's made from wool that is an offcut from food like the the shepherds that are tending to these sheep they're not tending to them for their wool production they're tending to them for for their meat production often in northern siberia they're like this isn't mass production farming this is subsistence farming and the the wool had been for centuries taken and and turned into a a valenki this boot that would keep the russians warm through the winter mm. uh it was made by women in this beautiful factory, you know, a nine-hour drive north of Moscow, it was sub. It was adding. It was adding capital to these women who are traditionally shepherds mm. and subsistence farmers. Mm. And the more they could make these boots, the more money they would have, which also coincidentally makes them less dependent on the state, right. less likely to support Putin, uh, which was only something we realized when nine days after we launched, Russia invaded Ukraine. Yes. And suddenly, first of all, we had to get our founder out of Russia. He was there. And there was talks of Putin shutting down the border. While the borders were shutting, there was talks of martial law coming in. And Andre, our founder, was going to have to be enlisted. He had Ukrainian family. Gosh. It was just, it, we weren't talking about boots. This was like, okay, how do we, how do we get him and his family out? Yes. Um, and then as, as that was settling, and also as we realized that this wasn't just... I remember the weekend that we all thought, or I certainly thought Kiev was going to fall. And we kind of thought, well, this might be done on Monday and Ukraine will be gone and and this could be it. And then miraculously, Ukraine fought back and we realized that, okay, this this isn't going away quickly and we have a Russian product and a Russian supply chain and a Russian story. This is probably going to be a bit harder than my first. It's not just convincing people to wear a weird boot. Yeah. Now there's yeah. another yeah. layer. Yeah, the provenance isn't quite so appealing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was heartbreaking. We, It was sort of a, a slow, I think the quote is, how do you go bankrupt very, very slowly and then suddenly all at once? Yeah. And it was Gosh. this moment where, okay, I think, and Andre is still going and going at it alone and doing his best to tell this really beautiful story because it would be good if the, the the more we are supporting these women making the boots the more we are showing them that the west is good and that yes. there would be like we are countering all of the news that they're hearing about the west being bad and yeah. actually we're giving them more money for more education for so that they start to see that perhaps all the information they're being fed isn't necessarily correct yeah so it was a noble pursuit but I had to exit. I could, quite understandably, uh, which brought you then to Finisterre, your current role as CMO. So, quick, just for those who those people who are listening who might not be familiar with Finisterre, um, how would you describe it? Well, we are. I would say we're the oldest British startup. Uh, we're twenty years old. Started in two thousand and three. We describe ourselves as a British cold water surf brand um, with sustainability at the heart. Mm. We were the first 
British outdoor apparel brand to receive or to achieve B Corp status. Mm -hmm. uh, we've maintained that and improved our and score every that year. That means what? B Corp is basically an independent body that is widely perceived as the best marker of whether a business is truly sustainable yeah. or truly good. Yeah. Um, it talks about, it, it isn't just about the materials you're using or whether you plant a tree. It is, how are you taking care of your supply chain? What are the mm. DE&I initiatives? What does end of life look like? Um, how are, and then it is a lot about your supply chain. How are you moving goods around the world? How are you dealing with wastewater from the dyes that you're dyeing your material? Like it's very comprehensive, really, really hard to pass. Um, and we were incredibly proud really to be the first. It's, it's very hard for an apparel company to get B Corp. Mm. Um, easier for an agency or organizations that are offering a service rather than a good. The yes. second there's a good involved, it's a lot more complicated. It's yeah. where is there's a carbon footprint involved in making that good. Exactly. Yeah. Extensive. Yeah. So we've been incredibly proud to achieve that and improve our score. We get recertified and every time we do, we've so far been able to improve our score. But we make, in essence, we make things that keep you warm and dry. Yeah. So great raincoats, incredible knitwear, yeah. trousers, base great, layers. Great t-shirts. I'm the proud owner of about six Finisterre t-shirts. I discovered them early lockdown. Um, so... I wonder if you could just sort of explain to me about the... So the the thing that really interested me about Finisterre was the sustainable wetsuits. Now, I grew up in the Gower, South Wales, and I remember wearing wetsuits when I was a kid, and I hated them. They were thick, they were cold, or they were damp when you put them on. But also, I understand, they're not very good for the environment, are they? Uh, and Finisterre has challenged that by creating a, a wetsuit that is much more sustainable. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So 99.9% .9 of wetsuits on the market are made out of neoprene. Neoprene is a petrochemical based material component. It's it's everywhere. So it's also, you know, it's in car manufacturing. It's in the padding of your backpack. It, 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 neoprene is used extensively, but, but in the surf industry, every wetsuit is made out of neoprene. The chemical component makes neoprene is called chloroprene. Chloroprene is produced in an area of the states called Cancer Alley. It's an area where the residents who are largely poor and black have a cancer rate that is 50 times higher than the national average. Well, whereabouts in the states is that? Louisiana, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah. And it's sort of widely known that this is a output that the cancer rates are directly related to the multiple chemical plants that live along, I think it's along the uh, Mississippi. And yet, because of forces <laughs> unknown to me, but probably quite easy to prove, um, the, the plants have remained open with very little accountability at the human cost. Mm -hmm. So a number of years ago, Patagonia were actually at the forefront of developing a natural rubber suit with a company called Ulex based out of California. Right. Um, Ulex is, it comes from tapping rubber trees from small holding farms all across Southeast Asia. There isn't a petrochemical in sight. Mm. Uh, the suits are flexible, warm. They perform just as well as neoprene. And we were really proud. We, when we first got into the wetsuit market, we did have a neoprene wetsuit, but we are now neoprene free and have been for a number of years. Mm. I believe we're the only wetsuit one of the only wetsuit manufacturers who can say that we're 100% neoprene free. Hmm. Oh, wow. Um, and in terms of the, the way that the, the neoprene is recycled, how does that work? 
So we haven't yet success. Well, we have successfully recycled it, but we haven't yet successfully turned it into a new usable product. Right. Product. Okay. Yeah. So a few years ago, we hired. I think it was the world's first wetsuit recycler. Yeah. Um, it was the first time that that job had ever shown up on LinkedIn, mm. and <laughs> it was recognizing that wetsuit. Not a common job. <laughs> not a common job. Yeah. And it was recognizing that wetsuits have a lifespan, um, and because neoprene is so. I mean, durable, I suppose, but I mean, it, it never goes away. Mm. It's used to land, to line landfill. It's, um, we can't get rid of it. Every wetsuit that's ever existed still exists. Mm. And surfers usually need to replace theirs every two to three years, if not every year based on usage. And so there, there's a problem. There's a growing mountain of neoprene and we knew it needed addressing. And so we hired this wetsuit recycler to come in and just help us figure out what, what could actually happen. So we did a huge community program where people were able to send in their wetsuits. They got you know money off potentially a new wetsuit or something else. And we're now working with a third party in Europe we have produced some prototypes. I can't possibly say what, oh, wow. but we can of of some uh, neoprene based goods that will keep you warm in the water. Mm. Um, some of them actually were shown on the Beeb recently. BBC did a, mm. a, a a story on the unsustainable side of surfing, and we're really hoping to bring those to market in the next few years. Very exciting. I'll watch that space. Um, now, Finisterre is based in Cornwall. That's right, isn't it? Now, and you have um, you've moved to Cornwall as well, haven't you? There, not so, yet. Not so. Not so totally. I know that you're you're based in South in Streatham, I believe, in London. Streatham Hill, yeah, gateway but, to the south. But then you're you're working a certain number of days of the week in Cornwall. How, how does that work? How does that sort of that that commute back and forth to the southwest work for you? Mostly because I have an incredibly supportive husband. Yes. So that's the first and most important factor. Um, I go down on average every other week, but. The, there's a lot of travel involved in the job. So I'm usually away every other week, sometimes yeah. to Cornwall, sometimes elsewhere. And I'm, I'm, I mean, we still have a hybrid working environment at Finisterre. So yes, we're based out of St. Agnes. We have around 60 employees that are working out of Wheel Kitty, which mm. is the old mining engine house that we're in, mm. right on the cliffs overlooking Trevonance Cove. Mm. It's pretty spectacular. And we're only in three days a week. Mondays and Fridays have remained work from wherever. Mm. Mostly take the train down. On I love the sleeper train. Mm. I've gotten very used to it. How long does that take from London? Well, it stops. So you get on it from uh, Paddington at, oh gosh, half 10. I yeah. think it departs at 11.45, but you can get in, you get a little cabin. Yeah. You can fall asleep. Um, and then it trundles along. I think it start, stops outside of Reading for an hour. Yeah. You're sort of the first... I think Exeter is probably one of the first stops and that's at around quarter to five in the morning. That's great. Yeah. Isn't it? And then I get off in Truro at 7am. They bring me tea. And oh, what a lovely like, way a to travel. Yeah. Oh, it's like, and you sort of open the window and I'll yeah. sit there in the little bed looking at the the hillside as the sun rises. So it's it's pretty nice. And then I, if I've traveled on a Monday night, which I often do, every Tuesday morning we have an all company we call it Sea Tuesday and the first mm. hour of the day is an opportunity to connect to the ocean. And so I usually get off the train, get to St. Agnes and meet the team down in Aggie Cove and we yeah. all jump in the ocean. In your wetsuits or? Well, it depends on the time on of the, year. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we were yeah. doing it December, January, yeah. February. What an amazing thing to do. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty special. And that must kind of, uh, that must help with employee engagement, I guess. That just, I mean, it's very different. I mean, not many companies would be able to do that, starters. No, I mean, not only is it us living into our purpose, but it's an incredible way. 
it's humbling. Like, you know, there, it doesn't matter what your job title is when you're in the ocean and there's an angry looking seal and there's a really big waves and yeah. it's freezing cold and you're all just sticking together and watching out for each other or you're clambering over cliffs because someone wants to take you to a secret pool that you've never been to before. So yeah. it's sort of, it really is a reflection of the amazing culture that Tom Kay, the founder, has has created. And with our, you know, really big desire to keep and maintain a connection to the ocean and introduce others to the yeah, ocean as well. Yeah. Um, and one final question on Finisterre before we move on to talk more generally about sustainability comms. Um, we've just had a very, very hot September, which I guess was not great if you're about to launch your no, autumn collection. No, most retailers are pretty annoyed <laughs> yeah, by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what's happened there? How have, you, how have you handled the communications around that? Yeah, we launched, we launched autumn and it was great had a great launch and then by that weekend it was 30 degrees uh, to be honest we just wrote we were like okay we'd had a great summer because it was so cold so everybody mm. was buying raincoats and yeah. and knitwear um and and our wonderful swimmable wetsuits but we just knew it wasn't going to last and to be honest we were like everybody get out enjoy the sun cornwall hadn't had a great summer so for the cornish team in particular september's also when the swell arrives so mm. all the surfers on the team are very excited and i think half of my team were mostly just surfing for that first week of the heat wave and mm. by the second week week they were all so exhausted that they slowly returned to office the yeah. office but and now of course the rain is back and sales are back so we're okay oh good glad to hear that now i'd just like to chat to you now about sustainability communications and what companies should and shouldn't be doing how important is having that authentic brand purpose to sustainability comms? So, for example, okay. um, when I think of Patagonia or Finisterre, I think those guys mean it. Yes, you'll be you'll be cool, but also there is a heritage of 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 being that way, that focused on sustainability. Can a company start to talk more about sustainability when maybe they don't have that that authentic purpose? Great question. I mean, we know that. Well, we believe that sustainability isn't a trend. It's not going away. And and certainly something that we also talk a lot about is that it's not the thing that's going to make us or keep us distinct. Um, we have to be more than just a sustainable brand. But if you work at an organization or for a brand and you're not already talking about how can you become more sustainable, I think that's a pretty big red flag. Mm. Um, this is the last decade we have to save the planet, to be honest. Mm. Um you know, we should be really scared of the lack of inaction that we're seeing mm. or the lack of action. We should be we should be really scared of the lack of action we're seeing mm. Mm. from the governments and, to be honest, from the big multinationals. Mm. This is going to affect us all. Our jobs. I mean, it sounds dramatic, but our jobs are at stake. Mm. You know, if we don't have if. You know, all the research and science points to societal collapse. It points to mass migration, like mass migration. Mm. Mm. And within our lifetime, within mm. the next 50 years. And I think I read in a book the other day that 70% of the people alive today will be alive by 2070 or will still be alive by yeah. 2070. So <clears throat> this is going to affect us. Yes. And so, y yes, as a brand, you should be talking about it because consumers are looking for it. And I, and I don't think they're going to stop looking for it. But also as a human, you should be talking about yeah. it because... I, I don't I think we sometimes fail to grasp the seriousness of the crisis that's ahead of us. Only yesterday, Rishi Sunak pushed back um, the cease of production of petrol vehicles, isn't he, by another five years, I believe. I mean, that things like that don't help, do they? The, uh, the And the car the, manufacturers the don't want it either. No, 
I mean, head of Ford, she was saying what we need is consistency and commitment and that this is not that. So, I mean, I'm a lefty and I read, my dad always tells me to read media from all sides so that Mm. I understand the arguments. I'm not Mm. very good. I'm not very good at it because it just makes me mad. But I would like to see what the mail is saying about Rishi. I probably yes. need to check. Yes. Uh, the Guardian certainly is is giving the scathing reviews of, yes. of what this means. And also just what it means for us within the international scene. I, I'm Canadian and we very much grew up of being proud to be green. And although that hasn't always, when you scratch beneath the surface, Canada is a huge oil producing country. Mm. Um, you know, we, we are, have not been great with the First Nations communities, by coming in and exploiting the natural resources around them. And as a culture, we're generally, we celebrate sustainability and celebrate that as part of who we are, as a, as a, as, as part of our identity. And I think for me, it feels really weak that the government thinks we need to pander to, I would like to believe, a small section of the society, of our population that don't think this is really important Mm. but like look what covid taught us Mm. you know if we're not prepared it's going to come i think hollywood has trained us to believe that there'll always be a happy ending Mm. but nature is brutal and it's not we're not here to save the planet we're here to save humanity Mm. and we're here to save our quality of life and we're here to save the fact that our children can grow up and have choice and have you know freedom from persecution and ability to ha- live a fully expressed beautiful life that w- that we're living right now and and that's what is at risk yes. if we don't actually get into action yes um now you've joined um finisterre which is an already established sustainability brand how do you go about maintaining that that once it's there i mean i guess you've got this there's, there's two potential jobs one is building one and one is maintaining one maybe you could give me an example of of how you would do both how would you build a sustainability brand and then how would you maintain it building a sustainable brand i mean i think it would come down to well, what product are you selling what, or what service are you selling and is the, does the world need this like is is there is there a need that you're uniquely dressing and then is there a way that you can do it that has less terrible impact. Right. Everything we're producing has an impact, but it, so it's, you know, we have to write, Finisterre has an impact. Patagonia has an impact, but it's about minimizing it and hopefully inspiring other businesses to minimize as well. If I was starting something new today, it would be also, could I start something that's part of the solution? Could I start something, you know, the opportunity in packaging to revolutionize, you go into a grocery store and everything is wrapped in plastic. Yes. And I know there's huge effort going in to fix it, but like, I would love to be part of a business that was really going to solve that problem. Mm. Uh, we talk about it in in retail of shipping clothes around the world. Most clothes still have to be wrapped in plastic in order to protect them. And then we ship by sea, but other, brands are shipping by air is there something of is there another way to be sending product around the world where actually you're you're part of the solution rather than starting something and then you spend your whole time mitigating mm-hmm. for oh like how can we lessen this mm-hmm. i mean i think that would be the dream is yeah. to is to be in that green economy yeah and as far as sustaining it i mean w- we have an incredible head of impact she spends all of her time making sure, working with supply chain, working with comms, working with our partners, vetting them, making sure that you know we aren't 
working alongside somebody that is undermining the work that we're doing. She also spends a lot of time just doing internal enrollment, making sure we're all clear, we understand. She's circulating new research reports. She's undertaking our own research reports. We're doing right now all around um, barriers of access to the ocean. So we believe the ocean is one of the most critical parts of the climate solution. The problem is the ocean is inaccessible for a lot of people. It's right. far away. It's scary. There's cultural barriers. We don't, we sort of set off at first going, like, oh, we know the answers. We'll fix this. And actually what we realized was that we didn't have people on the team that were coming from the groups who aren't accessing the ocean. Yeah. We, we are a largely white middle-class team who have all benefited from having access to the ocean easily. And so now we're going out to these communities and we're asking them, what is it that's stopping you? We're turning that into a white paper. We'll, we will hopefully publish that and give it to the industry at large. And, and then we will take the actions from it and put them into play. And I think by having Adele leading this team, by having it as part of our purpose, it's part of our 10-year vision of creating wilder oceans. Yeah. It just is naturally embedded throughout the organization. We have it in our tone of voice document, like what we do say, what we don't say. Mm. We have it in all of our OKRs. So everyone in the organization do, does their objectives and key results. Yeah. I think OKRs are, are a bit trendy right now yeah. um, and we're all asked like how can we be lessening our impact and how can we be making sure that we're held accountable to it yeah. and from a comms point of view I, I said earlier I, I don't think us being sustainable is going to be the thing that keeps us different I, no. I think brands in particular in in apparel they've just they've got to be even Shein they have a they got they hired one of my old sustainability colleagues from mm -hmm. Pangaea like they're yeah. they know That's they've the got Chinese to do it Chinese fashion brand right yes yeah. yes yes um, so everybody knows they need to do it. Yeah. And our challenge over the next decade is going to be, how do we still keep it at the core of everything we do? But from a branding challenge, how do we make sure that we remain distinct and not become just a, another sustainable brand that's out there? I talk about sustainability and you use the word sustainable. Have I got that wrong? Should I be talking about sustainable rather than sustainability? Because in corporate comms, I was always, we always talked about sustainability, right? Rather than sustainable brand what should i be saying well we should probably be saying neither right <laughs> uh we have an incredible compliance specialist working with us and the s word is sort of uh, a faux pas within the impact space right, right now okay. but it is the word that consumers why is it seen as a faux pas well because we're not truly sustainable no. we're still producing net new goods mm. uh anybody who's a sustainable brand if you if you are producing something from that didn't exist before yeah. that that ultimately isn't a sustainable practice yes so i think that's why it's sort of coming okay. under fire but we know i mean sustainable sustainability i see it as interchangeable yeah and it's the consumer shorthand so yeah as much as we're under pressure to stop saying it and we've yeah. got lots of of lovely other words around it yeah I mean, the Google data tells us that it's what people are searching for. Yeah. And and, and just in terms of um, the sustainable narrative or sustainability narrative, um, what is what are the secrets of that? If you're if you're kind of creating a narrative for your business, what are the secrets behind a good one? There's no such thing as perfect when it comes to sustainability. And I think you have to know what are the problems that you exist to solve. Mm. There are so many different facets of this sustainability mm. conversation and it is nigh on impossible for one brand or one business to do them all. 
so I think it's like figure out how it ladders up to your purpose or why you exist and whether that's retrofitting or whether it's something that you do at your creation. And then it's figuring out, well, what, what are you uniquely qualified to do as a business and what impact can, can you have? Mm -hmm. And then do the research and, you know, talk to the parties, the NGOs, the other entities that are already in this space and, and, and come in from a place of curiosity and, and willingness to learn and willingness to, to roll your hand, roll your sleeves up and do some hard work as well. Yeah. And then get all of that in line and then start talking about it because there are the, the consumers will hold you, not all of them. Lots yeah. of people just look for the tree planting or they yeah. just look for the word sustainable and recycled and they're like, oh, great, done, which great. Yeah. There's the fact that that's even something that people are looking for now is brilliant. And there will be the customers that will read your impact report. They yeah. will read every single bit of the microscript and they'll go, well, hang on a second. Mm -hmm. You're talking about your emissions, but you're only talking about your emissions and not your factory's emissions. So what are you doing about that? And if you haven't got all your ducks in a row, you don't have to be perfect, but you at least need to have thought about this and yeah. and figured out what your response is. Thank you. And then we talked earlier a little bit about uh, Lululemon and employee engagement. I mean, more broadly, based on, on your experience, the experience that you've had now, how should brands go about engaging employees with the sustainability agenda, do you think? I'd listen to them first, mm -hmm. especially any company that has anyone who's under 25. Mm -hmm. Do you think they are more attuned to the sustainability agenda than maybe older employees? I think they can be more passionate. I mean, I hate broad strokes. Um, you know, I would say both my parents, boomers, yeah. uh, you know, we've been recycling since the 80s. You yeah. know, I remember mom, my mom never bought me anything with packaging and always saying it's mm. too much packaging. So she would probably be horrified to hear that, the you know, an under 25 is more attuned to the conversation than she is. Yeah. So I, I think broad strokes, you'll listening to your employees, you're going you're going to find the ones who have been in this work across every age category. Yes. And the great thing is that if you've got, especially if you're trying to hire under 25s and under 27s, they're really going to hold you to account. Yeah. Uh, you know, boomers, Gen X and millennials, we, we grew up without expecting it. So we won't necessarily, you know, we might get our knickers in a twist, but not necessarily quit. Yes. Where like what we're seeing from Gen Z is they won't join your organization if you can't answer what your um, gender pay gap is or uh, yeah. your DE&I initiatives right. and what your sustainability plan or strategy or they're going to be reading those impact reports. Yeah. And so I'd start with listening to them and ask, what is it that you want? What what do you think we could do? Mm -hmm. What could we do to support you? Is it that we have the cycle to work scheme or more remote working? Um, is it a tech solution? Is it a fabric solution, but but ask them first. Get them to to put some skin in the game as yeah, well yes. to to have some buy in and go. Yeah. Okay, this is I I've got to be part of the solution here. Yeah, uh, and then build from there. And it sounds like it's much more about showing than telling. It's kind of giving them example. They're actually putting things into into action rather than just talking about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if the leadership stand up at the annual strategy day and say we're going to do sustainability and then you don't hear anything from them oh. or nothing changes oh. then in 12 months I think you're going to be having a few employees ask put their hands up and go so what whatever happened to that sustainability initiative yeah. so yeah. there's got to be the tell and I think listen to the employees but then also lead from the front like the the leadership team have also all got to be signed up to it and understand their their impact we all have huge blind spots when it comes to our own personal impact but then also 
you know, empowering employees to engage with politics so that they understand their vote matters and their vote counts, Um, getting them to to read and share and disseminate with their own family members, you know, telling that uncle that still drives the the gas guzzling Hummer that, you know, he might want to consider uh, a hybrid next time he buys his car. Or did he know that his council offers recycling if he just gets this other bin? And the great thing about anyone with a number of employees is that you also get their own networks around them. So if it's something you really want to do, start from the top, figure out what problem it is that you're going to solve. Listen to your staff about the support they need, then put the plan in place and and make it happen. Fantastic advice. Thank you. Um, Two more questions before we finish up. Firstly, um, which are the sustainability brands or sustainable brands do you admire? Who's kind of, who's actually acting a good game and talking a good game at the same time? I mean, it's so obvious, but Patagonia, you know, they're a year into this radical experiment of changing their ownership to non a nonprofit organization that will take the proceeds and put them back into the planet, which I just think, you know, it it is just so cool that they're continuing to lead from the front and have a huge admiration for what they do. Of course, I'm biased, but I think what Pangaea have done, a lot of what the problem was within the sustainable fashion sector was that everyone was preaching to the converted. And at Pangaea, we talked a lot about if we are going to truly solve the problem, we need to bring everybody along with us. Yes. So there was never any negativity. There was never any shaming. It was, let's make it really easy for people to make a better choice. Mm-hmm. If they educate themselves on why recycled cotton is better or not, it doesn't matter as long as recycled cotton is what they're choosing over, over even not even organic cotton. And we also used the power of celebrity and trend. We, we made it trendy and cool to be sustainable. Mm. And it wasn't in like the sort of gorp core where, you know, mm. Patagonia in, inhabits this beautiful space of where it has become mainstream, but also from that sort of gorp core trend of, of wearing outdoor wear, where Pangaea has come in. Also, we spoke all about we're a material science brand, which most people don't even know what materials i didn't know what material science was i didn't even know that was a thing and it's this whole realm that especially people in the sustainability space are looking at is how can we change the materials that we're using that make up our everyday existence and find a more sustainable alternative so i think what was being done there was was actually really brave and and recognized that if we make people feel bad if we make them feel ashamed and if we don't bring everybody along for the journey, then we're never going to solve this this big planet problem. Yeah. Final question. What are the big don'ts that companies need to consider when it comes to sustainability comms? What shouldn't they be doing? Overpromise and underdeliver. Mm-hmm. And what about this kind of, there's a lot of talk about greenwashing, isn't there? Um, it, are too many companies guilty of only talking about kind of long-term targets and what they're going to do in the future? Um, what, what what have you read or heard recently that that makes you just think that is just not authentic or that just they just don't mean it? Short answer: Yes, there are a lot of companies yeah. guilty of that, yeah. and you know, at least they're having the conversation. Like at yeah. least, hopefully, if these comms are coming out, that means that the board is recognizing that something's happening here. We, we, we've got to react. Um, Martin Sorrell spoke at Madfest, or Sir Martin, forgive me. Yeah. Um, and he talked about he did his great predictions, and he said that he thought sustainability wasn't going to be important to CEOs in 2024. And I just I think it's 
a reckless, ill-informed mm. prediction. Mm. Look what's happening in legislation. Uh, companies are now, well, it's not, soon it will be companies, but governments are now being held account legally yes. to like look what happened in the states what was it montana or ohio a whole bunch of teenagers took the government to court because they have not the 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 state constitution says that they have a legal obligation to a right of life and the teenagers were able to prove that by the state continuously investing in oil and gas they are taking negating these youths right to a life and and they were found the state was found culpable. So it's not long until the brands are also going to be facing these lawsuits of you have, if I'm in oil and gas, I would be trembling in my boots Mm. going, hang on, someday someone is going to look at the lawsuits that hit the the cigarette industry, the tobacco industry. I mean, those are surely coming for oil and gas and the other big polluters. And it's only a matter of time. So if these companies aren't already thinking about it they need to be thinking about it if they're talking about it they need to be honest they need to under promise they need to be own their mistakes i mean in this age of of cancellation the best way to take the sting out of an argument or the heat out of something escalating online is just apologize and yeah. say we, we hear you yeah. we got this one wrong yeah we're gonna go back and Hold do it again yeah. yeah yeah like yeah. if you want to input we want to hear from you. Yeah. How could we be better? And I think, I hope that answers your question. It does. Probably that, that's fantastic. It's absolutely fascinating. And I could talk to you for hours about it, but I'm, I'm mindful of your time. Um, we've got one final thing that I'd like to do before we, we wrap up. Um, I ask each of my podcast guests to answer six quickfire comms related questions. All right. You ready? Yes. Sum up your communication style in three words. Joyful, joyful, <laughs> honest, witty. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Of all the comms you receive or emails you get, roughly what percentage do you delete without reading? 80%. What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? Anything from Reformation. They do such, they're an LA based brand. They, I always feel as though their emails are literally reading my mind. And I cite them all the time to my team of like, if you really understand your consumer and you understand how they think, you will write like Reformation do. In your opinion, what's the one thing a business can do to boost engagement? Start from within. Talk more and listen more to your employees. What makes a good communicator? A good listener. Someone once said, you have two ears and one mouth. Absolutely. Which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? Goodness, um... My grandmother. Oh. She always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Brilliant. It's great to have a grandmother featured in this, in the, the six answers. Bronwyn, thank you so, so much. Really, really enjoyed that. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, including live updates and early access to each podcast episode, why not sign up to the newsletter at Delete Delete Engage? dot substack dot com.